chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. And then we're going to go to Romans chapter 14. And we'll read verses 9 through 15. Great blessing to see all of you here. We've got many that are sick and sick children. We have those that are traveling, vacation, etc. But I am delighted that the Lord gathered you here today. And uh, for those that have not been with us, we've been doing an extended study on the subject of conscience. And we're taking an extended series of what I might call footnotes and applications on the subject of stumbling blocks. I feel a little uncomfortable that we have enough here that either have not been here or, uh, or are visiting. Uh, there are 26 messages prior to this, and they all feed in to these. Now, uh, I wish you had those thoughts in your mind as you hear this morning, but I do trust that the message will be able to stand alone anyway this morning. What we're doing is making applications. We've done uh, exposition of Romans 14, and we were in the process of doing exposition of 1 Corinthians 8. We will return to 1 Corinthians before this is all over, God willing. But today we're looking at those Two passages for the emphasis on stumbling blocks. The Holy Spirit inspired the apostolic warning of stumbling blocks. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. And we'll read through verse 13. This is the word of God. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at the meat, or sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols, and through thy knowledge... Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? What stronger warning could we be given? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. For those of you who have not been with us, the word offend there does not mean taking displeasure. Uh, uh, He said something, she said something, and I've been offended. The idea here is causing someone to sin causing someone to stumble into sin. That's vital. Now, Romans 14. Romans 14, 
And we will now read verses 9 through 15. For to this end, Christ both died and rose again and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him. There it is again. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. <clears throat> o gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how we praise Thee, our God, this morning. Thy word is clear. There is no God but the God of Holy Scripture. That blessed and holy sovereign manifest as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. How we thank Thee that God loves us today. And that we know it, we see it, we experience it. Particularly through Thy Son and the blessed power and presence of Thy Spirit. And for this, O Lord, I pray for Thy people this morning. How I pray with all my heart that Thou wouldst be generous be gracious with thy children that are here. O oh Lord, thou dost love us. Thou hast given us thy son. So we plead with thee. Grant us the power and presence of thy spirit. We are thy temple. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it is with every true church across the face of this globe. We pray for all our brothers and sisters in every place on this planet. Lord, wherever they are today, may their hearts be united throughout the various time zones. May, may their hearts be lifted up in prayer, in praise, in singing, in adoration, in the true biblical worship of Almighty God. Strengthen our brothers in the battle. Strengthen our brothers and sisters as we fight on day by day as thy kingdom advances against the gates of hell 
And they will not prevail against us. Oh God, come in thy power today. May we know thee. May we know thy son. And may we know thy spirit. Oh my God, my, my great Savior, my Creator, my Lord, I pray for this people. I pray for those who are lost here this morning. Oh, thou art a God of grace and mercy and love. Please come and move in the hearts of those that are lost. Draw them out of their darkness. Draw them out of their refuge of lies. Draw them out of their prideful resistance to Christ and bring them to a clear and saving knowledge of our beloved Lord and Savior. And Father, for thy dear children that are here, thy love for us is beyond our ability to comprehend. Lord, we can, we can only get the truest most powerful glimpses of it in thy holy son upon Calvary's cross, in the empty tomb three days later, in his glorious ascension and in his session at thy right hand as he intercedes for us now. Oh, may our hearts swell with joy and thanksgiving that thou hast given us such a savior. Now, O oh God, help us to love thee Help us to love thy people and grant us ears to hear thy word. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to this people today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul warn us against setting stumbling blocks in the path of other believers. The Corinthian and the Roman believers were in great danger of doing so. And to do so, as we have seen in the sacred text, is a sin against Christ. You cannot Sin against God's people at any level without sinning against Christ. And what more dreadful thing to do to those that we profess to love in Christ than to make occasion for sin. The Spirit-breathed passages that we have just read make it clear. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit warns us by stumbling our brothers and sisters, we can wound their weak consciences. Listen to the language, wound. (laughs) I'm carrying some wounds in my body I didn't have a month ago. Wounds hurt (laughs) when they are genuine wounds. They can come from all sorts of ways. But we wound God's people. We wound their conscience. We can destroy them 
We've spent some time looking at that. We can destroy the work of God. To put a stumbling block before God's people is to war against the church of Jesus Christ. Do we get that? More importantly, do you believe that? Do you believe it so that when you come here and fellowship with God's people, you are conscious that you do not want to stumble anyone? That's one of the reasons we are taking time to make extended application so that we can get more of a sense for how we can cause others to stumble. By stumbling Christ's people, we sin against them and we sin against Christ. Now, for the sake of those who have not been with us and for the sake of our own memories, a stumbling block is something said or done in a way. Those are important three words. Said or done in a way that leads someone else to sin. Or it hinders their spiritual life. We must remember that even something lawful can become a stumbling block if not handled biblically. Who does it? How they do it. When they do it. Why they do it. And to whom they do it. All. All of those things together or separately can make something that appears good to be a stumbling block. You can give someone what you think is sound counsel. Thinking you've done them good. Only to find out you didn't know what in the world you were talking about and it didn't apply to them and they wandered off the path or were hurt by your so-called counsel. Not everybody's a counselor, by the way. We've got to be careful about the way we handle God's word. Imagine that as believers, toward believers... We speak the word of God, and while we think we're doing something good, we're actually causing someone to stumble by telling them what they should be doing or what they should not be doing when maybe it's just our spiritual preference, not the command of God's word. A stumbling block is the opposite of edification. We're to love one another. And build one another up. That's the whole idea behind edification. We call an edifice. Perhaps a a, a building. Or the front of a building. The edifice. Something built. And we're to edify. We're to be building up one another in the faith. Encouraging one another. Strengthening one another. Walking with one another. In our battles. And in our joys and delights. A stumbling block is the opposite of edification. It is also the opposite of love. To cause someone to sin or become the occasion for someone to sin is not love. 
So Christ's love for us should lead us from a self-oriented life to an others-oriented life. You're not going to get that from our culture. I never tire of saying that. We come into this world self-centered. And we will live our lives in a self-centered way unless by the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to get others in our view. Love one another, said Christ, as I have loved you. This must prevail with us. This isn't something that should just be tucked in the corner. But this should be, since his banner over us, the Song of Solomon, since his banner over us is love, that should be something that is obvious among us. Love for Christ. Love for God's people. If you can take or leave God's people, you're in the wrong place. So, we're studying stumbling blocks within the larger context of conscience. And the title of this message is Stumbling Your Family. This is part two. Now, may our loving Heavenly Father and may our faithful mediator, Jesus Christ, enlighten and transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may it be for the eternal glory of God and the good of his people. It's not just for some selfish religious experience. It's to show the glory of God to this lost and dying world. It's to magnify him and it's to be good to and for his people. May the Lord hear that prayer and answer it as this message unfolds. So, in part one, we began answering the question, in what ways can we stumble others? And of course, there are two answers. One, there are too many ways to to list. The other is, well, you can do it with malice in your heart. You might cause someone to stumble because you have malice in your heart toward them or you've been nurturing one of those ugly little creatures called grudge. That sounds like an ugly thing, doesn't it? (laughs) She's carrying a grudge. Oh, drop it as quickly as you possibly can. They are deadly, by the way. In what ways can we stumble others? Well, we can stumble them in broad in a broad sense when we think we're doing something good and we'll see. Peter Peter thought he was doing something when he said to Christ, "Oh Lord, may it never be." You just talked about crucifixion and all that. May it never be. We we you don't want that. We don't want that. And he got the stiffest rebuke that there is in the scriptures that I know of. He thought he was doing good. And Christ himself rebuked him. So it isn't just because of wicked things that are easy to identify. We can actually unthinkingly stumble others by the way we handle the truth of Almighty God. 
by the way we live. We might even be telling somebody something because we, quote, love them, but we do it in such a way as to completely turn them from the faith. So, this is a challenging subject. It's huge. So, we can stumble others in our family. That's what we're considering right now. We can stumble others in daily Christian living, in our congregations, in relation to the government, and even outside our congregations. That's fairly thorough, isn't it? There's almost no aspect of life where we can't stumble someone. So, We began last time with we can stumble others in our family. It may shock us to realize that the first and great act of stumbling another into sin took place in the first family. Stumbling blocks began in a domestic context. Adam and Eve, husband and wife. The serpent set a stumbling block before Eve and she fell into sin. Eve then set a stumbling block before her husband and he fell into sin. And the horrifying consequences are still with us. The bitter fruit of sin that we eat comes from the bite of fruit in the garden. As by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. In Adam all die. Thankfully, all that are in Christ will live. Now, every stumbling block in the history of the world has grown from the bitter root of Adam's stumble into sin. We now live in sin, sickness, sorrow, and suffering that arises from his fall. We're not surprised that Satan and the powers of darkness work tirelessly to set stumbling blocks before God's image bearers. That doesn't surprise you, does it? What do you think he's trying to do every day, everywhere? But the great tragedy is when God's people stumble one another. Helping Satan and the demons in their work. Each act of stumbling another believer, as we've seen, is a sin against Christ. So, in part one of this message, we considered a few of the ways that husbands can stumble their wives. If you didn't hear that, Uh, It is available in MP3, I believe. But now let me offer a quote from uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones 
regarding this matter of, of marriage before I, I go further. Quote, there's no greater recommendation to the truth and power of the Christian faith than a Christian husband and wife. Let's hear that again. This is important for non-married and married people alike. There is no greater recommendation to the truth and power of the Christian faith than a Christian husband and wife. A Christian marriage and a Christian home. They're outposts from heaven. They are colonies of the gospel. A husband and a wife should shine forth, should show to the world by their relationship, by their love and respect for one another, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ's love for his people and the church's reverence of Christ. Dr. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, <clears throat> that, meaning Christian husband and wife, Christian marriage, Christian home, that helped to revolutionize the ancient world. Remember, then, the second injunction given to the husband. He is given this position of dignity and of leadership and of headship. And if he understands what it means, he will never abuse it. There are men who just want to have the final say for everything in their family. There are men who want to tell everybody how high to jump and how long to stay up there. They, they take pride that when they walk into the church, everybody sees them marching like little soldiers. That's not what they were given authority for. You're given authority to obey Christ and to administer his word to your family. That means in humility. That means in mercy, in grace, and love. And I don't mean necessarily softness. Our culture is in such a bad, in such a bad condition i mean it's uh, we got males all over the place but it's hard to find men i mean men men that lead and guide that's what they were made to do they play games well we won't run after that big rabbit but brethren if you're a man god made you a particular way a woman is not a man in a girl suit. She's in something entirely different from what you are. You are both human beings. You are both the image of God. But men were made to lead and they are told by God to do so. Well, my wife's smarter than me. Okay, well then learn a lot from her. But you're the one that's responsible you are the dis final decision maker. Well, you know, she got more education than I do. Well, great. You know, she needs to be probably your most important counselor. 
but you're the head. She'll never be the head. Never. Never. <clears throat> so, a man that understands why he's been given authority is not there, you know, to prove what bad news he is. Or he's, he's been given authority from God to administer the word of God and the gospel in his home. And he is to live according to the word of God so that his wife and his children see it. And they understand that he's imperfect. But the imperfections are not excuses for not mortifying those imperfections. We're all always going to be at war with the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. But we've been given the spirit, which is greater than our flesh. God loves us so much, he's given us a power greater than sin that wants to drag us to hell. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, he's given us everything we need. Well, we need to use it. So, Dr. Lloyd-Jones then finally says, uh, I'll pick up where I, I cut him off. He will never abuse it, meaning his headship. He will never misuse it by being harsh or dictatorial or unkind or unfair. To be guilty of such behavior is a denial of the marriage principle and means that there is an absence of the spirit. Close quote. Now, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I believe, has got his finger right on it. One of the reasons marriages fail is because very often one or both of the people professing Christians are as lost as they can be. Especially now in our day in America. Once again, won't go there for now. So, <clears throat> husbands have a very real responsibility. I, I encourage you, if you haven't, to read uh, the Free Grace Broadcaster on a husband's love. Read it. Read it again. Read it until it sinks in. <clears throat> and uh, it would be good for your wife to read it. She has every right to have biblical expectations and not just expectations she got from Hollywood or government schools or any of that but what God says in his word now so we're 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 in stumbling your spouse and the garden of eden teaches us that wives can stumble their husbands as well as vice versa wives can stumble their husbands. As we saw in part one, Eve stumbled Adam. Wives, please consider carefully what Christ commands you. Listen to his words. Wives, directly addressed, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. The first part isn't as difficult as the second part. There would be those who say, oh, well, I can, I can submit myself. You know, but as unto the Lord, boy, that's a qualifier. 
Submit yourselves unto your own husbands, not every other man on the planet, your husband. There are men, by the way, who think that they supposedly have rule over all women. They're unbiblical. They don't know what they're talking about. <clears throat> but a wife has a husband, and she submit to him as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Paul finishes this particular section with, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. In other words, see to it. Make sure this is a vital matter. Why? Because you are a witness to the world of Christ and his church. Your Christ, your husband is to love you with a Christ-like love and you are to reverence him with a church-like reverence. Of course, many churches today don't have much reverence for the Lord and the that might be hard for us to understand. But the idea here of reverence is not worship. It means a respectful obedience. This is something that's not demanded. It is something that should be a strength in the woman's part that she does voluntarily because Christ has commanded it. It's not for husbands to take and beat and bludgeon their wives with. But there are times when each have to remind the other what their role and what their responsibility before God is. The idea, by the way, behind the word reverence is the, the literal meaning of to fear. But in this context, it means a profound measure of of respect, especially the fear of offending. When you deeply love someone, you don't relish the thought of grieving them, hurting their feelings, stamping and stomping on them emotionally. You can't possibly understand what a Christ-like love is, That if that's the way you think. It's a profound respect that fears offending. And there would be the idea of displeasing or wounding. Now, what a breathtaking challenge that command is. Submit to a fallen man as one would submit to the Lord Jesus. The Holy Lord Jesus. Well, the answer is yes. Yes. Most, if not all, women would think that far-fetched at best. Impossible at worst. Nevertheless, it is not more challenging than husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Both commands are impossible to obey. They're not suggestions. 
They're not options. They are commands from the head of the church. But they're impossible to obey without faith in Christ, number one. Empowerment by the Holy Spirit, number two. And direction from the Word of God, number three. You won't know how to do it. You won't know what it looks like. And most of us have still been so <clears throat> influenced. That, that, that's not the best word. <clears throat> We've been so polluted and corrupted and infected with the way the world, especially Hollywood, sees love. We don't get it. <clears throat> and then when our marriages fall apart, it's like, oh, well, come and go. Don't know why that didn't work. Because you weren't walking according to the word of God. <clears throat> Christ's love for his church and the church's love, devotion, and obedience to Christ is set forth by the heavenly love of the gospel. Let me say that again. Christ's love for his church. And the church's love, devotion, and obedience to Christ, they, they set forth. They show the world. They display the heavenly love of the gospel. Or they should. If they're not, something's wrong. Now, when I say something's wrong, I'm not necessarily saying someone is or is not a Christian. What I'm saying is something's wrong. <clears throat> And it needs to be corrected. The world needs to see husbands and wives living in a holy union of love and respect. By the way, I, I also recommend highly the Free Grace Broadcaster on a wife's respect. Both of you, your husband and your wife, should read both of those. Get some idea, some biblical idea of what this means. Because if you don't, you're simply going to follow what you saw in your own home, warts and all. Whether Even if it was a Christian home, very often most of them are so wired to the Hollywood way of living that they have no idea of what real love, according to Christ, really looks like. What real respect is. The world needs to see husbands and wives living in a Christ-like, church-like union. Now, if our congregations fill up with people of that mindset, It'll be good for the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it will make us better, a better bride for the bridegroom. This is rock bottom, vital, foundational stuff. And even among, I've been in family reform for a long time. And I will tell you, there are people that talk, but they get home and it's a different thing when they get home. Dear believing women, 
Stop and think for a moment. What stumbling blocks do you put before your husband when you disrespect him? Well, first of all, you yourself are disobeying Christ. That, would, that should be enough to shake a regenerate soul into repentance. But when that repentance is not there, the actions and the thoughts are generally just going to go on. We'll have moments of, well, I felt bad about what I said, and, you know, I'm sorry, yeah, it's okay, all right, let's move on. This is not Christian forgiveness or repentance. Telling somebody I'm sorry is telling them how you feel. Asking forgiveness is acknowledging that you have done something wrong and that you're asking that person to forgive to release you from that wrongdoing that you have done against them. So, what stumbling blocks, my dear sisters, and I say this, I trust graciously, what stumbling blocks do you put before your husband when you disrespect him? Such as, when you disagree with his decisions. Now, the disagreeing isn't the part that's problematic. It's how, when, why. Then that can become a stumbling block. Let me be very clear. Some of the better decisions I've made in my life have been because my wife has disagreed with me. And I've had to go back and think about it. But how do you respond when you disagree? What attitude do you show toward your husband? Is it honor? Is it respect? A respect that desires not to offend? Are you going to put him in his place? What are you going to do? <clears throat> when you are skeptical about his plans. You know what, sweetheart? I think we ought to do this. <laughs> Sometimes that's not a great idea. But it will seem like that to him for the moment. Or it may prove to be a good idea. How do you respond? Do you respond in such a way that puts a wonderful stumbling block right in front of him so that he hits it and falls flat on his face in sin or slows down in his sanctification. All of a sudden, there's a fight going on at the house and it's like, how did we get here? How did we get? We were having a nice evening. How did this turn into this? Well, it's always sin. A lot of times it's because of a stumbling block, a response, tone of voice, an attitude, Words that you know are, quote, fighting words. I mean, you need to learn your spouse well enough to know that sometimes you've got to change some parts of your vocabulary radically in order to communicate well. Yeah, well, this is the way I grew up, and this is the way, this is, you just, what you see is what you get. That's not a Christian attitude. 
The attitude is that I'm on the way to being made. I, I am being made and I'm on the way to being like the Lord Jesus Christ. So how should I handle this? How should I listen and say, okay, this is the way she thinks. This is the way he thinks about this. Uh, let me think about it. All right. I, and ask questions. Is this what you mean? <laughs> is that how? It, it, what do you mean by that? Oh, okay, okay. That's not the way I was hearing it. All right. Right. It's amazing what can change if you just study your spouse and try to act like a believer working with another believer. Somehow, after I do, men and women seem to forget what they just vowed before God to do. The same thing when people become ch uh, church members. They completely forget their responsibilities. Whoa! And then you bring it up in a meeting and all of a sudden people are ready for the war path. And it's all rooted in their ignorance. They agreed before God to do something. They're not doing it. Are we getting this? <laughs> this is important. I want to see God's people flourishing. Flourishing. I'm not here to scold. I'm not here to beat anybody up. I'm here to say, listen, the word of God makes very clear that we sin ourselves. We can sin without anybody being around. But we also have a responsibility to the people around us. We can, we can draw them into sin. That's wicked. How about, how about this one? How do you respond? What, what, take the word reverence, a respect, a submission. <clears throat> Keep that, that thought in your mind. Do, do you talk to him with that in mind if you do not like what he wants to purchase? Well, I think we ought to get one of these or one of those. Or how do you react? Do you react like a Christian adult? If I could, I think there's some things you make, need to make sure you're thinking about if, if we're going to do this. You need to think about this, 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 and this. I mean, that's excellent. But I've, I have learned that from my own beloved wife. <clears throat> Do you care about the people that you're around? Do you really understand that your existence in this world impacts people around you? And the people that are closest to you, your family, are the ones you generally impact the most. Okay, so how do you react when you disagree with his decisions, when you're skeptical of his plans, when you don't like what he wants to purchase? How do you treat him? With respect? With love and wisdom? Like an adult? Or do you treat him like a child? Or do you treat him like a fool? 
Remember what wise Solomon said. A soft answer turneth away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. That is the inspired and infallible word of God. A soft answer turneth away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. Again, Solomon says, by long forbearing is a prince persuaded. And a soft tongue breaketh the bone. No, we want things right now our way. But there's times when there needs to be long forbearing. Everybody wants change immediately. Everybody wants change overnight. On rare occasions, something like that happens, but it's not usually the way things go. Your husband is the product of at least a couple of decades of being in a particular family culture. He's now been transplanted into your life and you have been brought up with a certain family culture and you it won't take very long before you start seeing where those family cultures collide right. that they, oh, i got a good amen there or something <laughs> all right and but what do we do in we most of us wouldn't say it this way but what we start doing is fighting for our way you can cause your husband to stumble if you're just fighting for your way. He may get very angry by the attitude, by the look on your face, by the tone of voice. You say, well, nobody can do all this stuff. Well, I go back to what I said earlier. No one can. These are impossible things Unless we have faith in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And we are given to wholehearted obedience to the Word of God. Your family tradition isn't the Word of God. Unless it was something that actually arose from the Word of God. We don't commit adultery in this house because of the seventh commandment. That one's clear. Now, I want us to consider an example of what we're talking about. Consider Michael, Saul's daughter. David fled from envious and bloodthirsty Saul, who wanted David dead. When David escaped him, Saul gave his daughter Michael to a man named Phaltai. And when David was finally seated on the throne, later, the throne of Israel, he demanded that Abner bring Michael back to him. I want the wife for which I paid the dowry of 200 foreskins of Philistines. Saul only said, just need 100. (laughs) David wanted to show himself. Now, He said, now I want my wife back. Abner, don't even think about coming and talking to me unless I get Michael back. Well, when David brought the ark of God into Jerusalem, he had Michael back. 
She looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And there could be a lot of reasons for that despising. But earlier in the story, she loved him. She loved him. And Saul knew it. She even helped him escape. She saved his life. But now she despises him as he's joyfully worshiping the Lord. Michael looked through a window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Oh, now she came out to meet David. And she said this with biting sarcasm. How glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. Hmm. Welcome home, sweetheart. Bitter, piercing, sarcastic words. What was David's response? Well, his overflowing joy turned into anger. Listen carefully. He said, it was before the Lord. Which chose me above your father. Oh, now you think that hurt? How did that feel? I was worshiping the Lord. You've just accused me of something. False accusation, by the way, is a serious sin. She just falsely accused him of some things. And he says it was before the Lord. I was worshiping God. Which chose me before thy father and before all his house. Your brothers, all of that. He chose me. And he appointed me ruler over the people of God, over Israel. Therefore, I will play before the Lord. He made me king over your father. And I will be yet more vile than this. If you're bothered by my worship there, for the glory of the Lord, I'll worship him even more intensely. And by the way, the maidservants which thou spoke of, of them shall I be had in honor. Oh, ouch. You were so concerned about them and me dancing in front of them. They're going to be the ones that are going to honor me and you're not. Now, this is not a pretty scene. David's right in what he's saying. But it's quite clear that this was not a gentle, loving relationship. Oh, how glorious were you today. And the young women saw you uncovering yourself, which he didn't. But when you get mad at people, their their crimes always get worse, don't they? Their crimes always get bigger and worse and more foul and more vile. And your anger, the more you think about it, the more angry you get and the more foul they become. 
Now listen to the way this closes up. It says, therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Dear believing women, consider what God sets before you here. David was caught up with joy and exhilaration. He was worshiping God with all of his heart. But Michael sarcastically mocked David's joyful worship. She had no heart for the worship that animated David. Now, the text doesn't say why, and there are several things in the chapters before that all could feed into this. This may be actually one of those perfect storm moments. The text doesn't say specifically why she was now despising him. Now, there are a lot of good suggestions, but the text just tells us it's so because the point isn't why. The point is that she did it. This is what God's telling us to look at carefully. She had no heart for the worship. She then falsely accused David of exposing himself to the young women. Now, that was an exaggeration at best, which no doubt arose from her now cold heart toward him. The text says that David was wearing a linen ephod. That was a long white garment worn by the priest. He was not flashing himself. And for this joyful occasion, David had laid aside his royal robes. Apparently, she's one of the things that she's upset about is, oh, you didn't look like the king. You've just been made king. You're here in Jerusalem as the king. You're calling it the city of David. And you're jumping around and leaping up and down. And it's just ridiculous. He had laid aside his royal robes because he was leading the people in worshiping God. He wasn't a priest, but he had put on the kind of ephod that the priest wore. Because for him, the ark coming into Jerusalem was so special. It was glorious. It was huge. It was big. And in a moment, the joy disappeared. With a a sarcastic statement. Hmm. Ever had anything like that in your house? Things were going okay. Things were doing pretty well. And all it took was one attitude. Boom. And your joy's gone. Mm -mm -mm. You can stumble your husband lots of ways. And husbands, you can stumble your wives. Lots of ways. The issue is to have a heart completely saturated with the love of Christ and the truth of his word and the power of God's spirit and a desire to love and to heal and to build and not get even. What was hidden in Michael's heart now poured out in venomous language. That's what happens. You keep that little thing inside your heart for a long time and it's down in there festering. But then when that moment comes, the fangs come out, the poison is squirted and uh, you've done your job. 
You know what's even more wicked than that? Is you've gotten hurt and you've got your little grudge nurturing in here like a cancer. And you keep practicing. If he says this or if she says this, then I'm going to say this. And I'm going to, you're laying out the battle plan. This is not Christian. Now, it is true. The heart studies how to answer, tell the Proverbs tell us. But the idea is not winning an argument. <laughs> no. We want love in our homes. And that means dying to ourselves. It means love that sacrifices itself. Well, let me go a little further. <clears throat> it's unclear why Michael never bore children from that moment on. The text just says it. Um, there are those who guess, they surmise, that it's quite likely that David was so offended with her sarcastic and, and wicked attitude that he was never intimate with her again. That's certainly a possibility, but the text doesn't say it. But the entire chapter, David tries to bring the ark into the, the holy city and Uzzah is struck dead by God because they didn't sanctify themselves and didn't, didn't carry the, the, the ark the way God commanded it. And finally, uh, it goes to Obed-Edom's house and everything is blessed over there. And so David rethinks it. Okay, what do we need to do? Well, we need to sanctify ourselves. The priests need to do this the way God has commanded. We didn't do that. And so he's bringing the ark of God into now the city of David. Jerusalem, the place where God put his name. And his wife kills it with a sarcastic statement. Isn't that something? But I would say because of that story, in my opinion, nobody's bound to this. I tend to lean, lean toward the idea that God struck her childless. Text doesn't say it. But she resisted the glory and the worship of God as it came into town. Oh. But her grievous words surely stirred up David's anger. And his, his apply demonstrates it. Furthermore, when a, a wife dishonors her head, she dishonors Christ, whom he represents. But you don't know my husband. Well, none of us will be able to sit for a portrait of Christ. I mean, you know, not, not one of us. But the Lord is dealing with us. He's making us, hopefully, godly men. There are ways toward that end. And what I want to see, God willing, is as the year progresses, that, that for the men who are taking this seriously, I hope they begin to shine brighter than ever in their homes for the blessing of their wives and of their children and for the wives taking these things to heart and saying, I'm going to respect my husband, even though there are times when he's not respectful. Now, that doesn't mean 
She has to okay everything I come up with. That's not what that means. She's a thinking person made in the image of God. Her wisdom, very often, (laughs) radically rearranges my thoughts about how I was going to proceed. That's a good thing. All right? If it's all in harmony with the word of God. There are times when it's like, no, I think we need to do this. And we need to do it. True enough, many husbands are unworthy of this kind of respect. And even the best of husbands can act sinfully at times. Bad attitudes. Worse words. Inexplicable actions. Am I confusing anybody? Or is it, do you know this? But consider our text. Think of, think of Michael, think of David, and think what was said, how it was said. Oh, how glorious were you. How it was said, when it was said, in the midst of David's extraordinary joy. Couldn't have been worse timing. Couldn't have been worse timing. She might have said, he is so rejoicing in this. I am so glad that he's happy. It's not a big deal to me. I'll give him a couple of days and then I'm going to talk to him about what he's doing. And nothing like that happening. She was waiting. How it was said, when it was said, by whom it was said. It was his wife, among several others. But she set a stumbling block before David. And as always, it didn't go well for her. So I ask you, dear sisters, what stumbling blocks do you put before your husband when you disrespect him? What are, your teaching, what are you teaching your children when you disrespect their father? Now, if it was a public sin, calling somebody on a public sin is not a wrong thing. But how you do it makes a difference. This is what we're saying. How, when, whom, where. We can put stumbling blocks before those that we love the most. You know, uh, uh, if, if you disrespect him in front of the children, are, are you teaching your daughters to disrespect their future husbands? How do you answer that? Do you disrespect him in the presence of others? You know, are, are, you, are you bringing him down? And there are women that do this. I'm, I, I don't know that there are any in this congregation that do. But there are those that because they're upset, they're unhappy, whatever the issue is, they're going to lower the way those children think about him. So, do you disrespect him in public, in the presence of others? Do you encourage your husband in the purpose and work that God has given him? That's so important. For a man to know that his wife is with him. 
When I came here, my first visit, 2002, I sat down with Pastor Shelton. He stunned me, asked me to come and work with him. And I was bewildered. The church I was in, that, that I was pastoring at the time, was growing. This didn't seem to fit the pattern. But by the time I left my discussion with Pastor Shelton until I reached the motel we were staying in, or the inn we were staying in, I had changed my mind at least half a dozen times. Right? And, and I lay down on the bed, and my wife crawled up next to me, and she said, whatever the Lord wants you to do, I am with you. I, I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you the blessing that was. When you look at Adoniram Judson and watch his wife fighting him at every step of his mission, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But my wife has said that over and over. Wherever the Lord wants you, I'm going to be with you. She didn't have a particular power driving her oh we want this this is a better paycheck or this is this is a better climb up and then maybe later you can climb up further and it may be it. there wasn't any of that plain and simple whatever God wants you to do I'm going to be right there and she's still here <laughs> that's grace that's amazing grace uh, oh, uh, so I tell you you can you can stumble your spouse, husbands. You can stumble your spouse, wives. Are you building your husband or tearing down your house with your own hands, as Proverbs speaks about? <clears throat> are you building your relationship or are you, whether you realize it or not, destroying it by constantly throwing stumbling blocks in the way of your husband? Has your attitude about various things so settled in that he's fallen over it every day? Or is he encouraged? Is he built up in the faith? Are the two of you together going to make it through to the, to the uh, celestial city? Is that your purpose? I'm going to walk with my husband. We're going to be one all the way. Well, there's certainly more. We're going to talk about stumbling your children next time. We'll have some things to say about fathers. They're free grace broadcasters on fatherhood and motherhood. You can read those as well. But my friends, this is fundamental. This is 101. And in our day of destroying the whole concept of male-female marriage, <clears throat> there are people all over the landscape confused, deeply confused. We need to show forth not simply strong homes, but holy homes, gospel homes. The holy words of Scripture make clear we can put stumbling blocks in the way of those that we love the most, the members of our family. 
And my friends, let us exalt Christ in our homes, in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. May our home be a place where when people come to visit us, they know that there is a union. They know that there is love there. They know that there's encouragement and edification there. Or is it, oh, 15, 20 minutes into a visit, people are starting to go, you know, there's something not quite right here. We want to show forth the glory of Christ Jesus. May he help us to do so. Let us not stumble the members of our family. And when we realize that we have, let us be quick to repent. Christ will help us. Father, I thank thee for thy great goodness. I thank thee for the kindness thou hast shown us today. I thank thee for these people. I thank thee for this congregation. I love thy people, Lord. I love thy sheep. And I pray that thou wouldst grow them and encourage them. Pray that thou wouldst wash away my sins, my failings. As I attempt to guide them in these very disconcerting days. It must be thy spirit. It must be thy word. And the love of Christ must prevail. Help us to do that. Help this place. If it is not known for anything else. As a place that loves Christ. And loves one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.